Hey everybody, Chris Swanson, Sheriff of Genesee County. Welcome back to another episode of the Black and Blue Podcast. We went on a field trip in a historic building, downtown Flint, and I'm going to introduce you to a dear friend of mine who's not Ken Wadike Jr., but does represent the people. Mm-hmm. Tell everybody who you are. My name is Jerron Dodson. I'm co-owner of the Poke Bowl and just all-around grassroots entrepreneur. Um, literally everything we do is uh, finding our voice through economic development. So that's how we founded our brand. And along that, in that journey, we found a good friend of ours who happens to be a sheriff. What's so, up? So I appreciate him bringing <laughs> me to the show. And yeah, I just can't wait to share our story and, and, and as well share the story of the people at the same time. So. So he's not even actually a guest, you're a co-host, because we've got other episodes, Shane Jackson's coming on, Percy oh, Glover, sure. and when you see what we've done, like we just released some episodes where Ken and I were in uh, LA mm-hmm. at the draft house for the Los Angeles Rams. We cover a lot of ground when it comes to black and blue topics, and for those that may be just joining in right now, we do talk about things that are of interest and build relationships mm-hmm. between the white and black community, the police community, and Jaron, for sure, is you're a social activist, but you do it in a way that you're like not offensive to people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are activists. They try to do right things. They offend people. Why is there such a, an importance of how you deliver that message? So what I figured out is not like just I guess being your so being an individual and not being tied to any one person or mission because it's hard when you when you get behind somebody and you have to follow their moves. And sometimes mm-hmm. if their integrity doesn't follow their action then you're by far associated with that. So me, I just kind of go out, I do the work, and then you attract those like-minded people along the way. So you, it's kind of hard to be upset with work and uh, nourishment in the community. So it's hard to be like, hey, I don't like what that guy is doing. I'm literally just out here trying to do what I can. You know, you can't do the most, but you can do what you can. And yeah. Clearly, yeah, clearly you take the lead on that. Man, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, I peep game, you know? Yes, <laughs> but it's because you were brought up this way. Now, For this sure. is what's really going to blow your mind. Today's topic is going to get really into the family, Mm -hmm. uh, the family dynamics of white community, black community, Muslim community, the family that is broken, the families put together. And there's, there's no pattern that what can work. Cause there's people that come out of broken families do amazing. Mm -hmm. There's people that come out of amazing families are just broke. Like they're destroyed. You were raised by a good family. Yes. You got to explain like how many brothers and sisters you have, the wow. age difference, uh-huh. and your unbelievable mom, Regina Bush. For sure. So, got our family spans multiple different ages. My mom all together adopted eight kids. <laughs> eight kids. So, uh, my oldest sister, we're all lifelong flip residents, so I'll start with that. Um, she had three biological, which is me and my two older sisters. And then she adopted my sister, Stacy, who was a Caucasian child. At the time, she was one of the first in Michigan to adopt the Caucasian child. It had to go to Supreme Court, actually, Michigan Supreme okay, Court. Okay, put a pause on this. Uh-huh. Your mother, who's black, correct, had to go to the Supreme Court to adopt a white girl. That's correct. Why? So, so my sister Sarah, um, who is currently, you know, she, now she's is on record that she could be considered mentally ill. And um, at the time, and they knew that just the way she was raised and what she had to go through as a baby, but she was biracial. So her mom was, uh, you know, Caucasian, and her dad was African American. So her and my sister Stacy shared the same mom, but had different dads. Got it. So originally, my mom went to adopt my sister Sarah, and was like, "Hey, I don't want to split the family up." 
And of course, naturally, Stacy is her older sister, so she's like, hey, I wanted to get Stacy as well. And so that's when the state and other forces like, you know, hold up, hold up now. You know, we understand what you're doing, we respect that, but we got some un unspoken rules and boundaries. And so that's where the whole, everything underneath came to the surface. And what year was this? Oh man, this had to be 90, 1996, it's crazy and, to be able to say that now. And how old are they? How old are you right now? 29. And how old are they right now? Uh, Stacy's about 33. Okay, so they were your older sisters. Correct. By correct. age. Do you think this resistance that was met by the system had anything to do with race? Oh, and not being biased, but most definitely <laughs> just being, a, a, being on the inside and seeing it and not being able to be amongst the people, the people who make the choices I can see back then. It was the color definitely played a part. Wow, yeah. we moved so far. We have, I will because say that. if that was same thing happened right now, do you think you'd have resistance? I don't think so. And it just comes with breaking down barriers, um, showing that love is colorblind, yeah. and that we can't put our own uh, our own stamp on something that that's natural. Like love is natural, humanity is natural, and we we it, through through our our infrastructure and structure of how we do things. We try to label things, but we can't do that when it comes to humanity. You know? I don't disagree with that. So you got your two sisters and then I cut you off. So keep yeah. going with the adoptions and the fosters. So, this so is fascinating. So yeah, so all together, and she's still adopting kids to this day. I know this, like babies. Babies. And be, because what people don't know is uh, COVID comes in and I'm sure you're aware as a sheriff, you see all the different things that happen in the household behind closed doors. Mm. But when we're, for, when we're forced in and we don't have, we, we're, we're there, we're forced to deal with all the problems and the trauma, um, the system bears, bears the whole the witness to that. Whereas our, our um, police, our, our um, ambulance, our first responders in general. And so the, the ramifications of that are, are broken homes. Mm -hmm. And so where those kids go, um, there are places that need resources. And then when COVID hits and all those resources are expanded, you know, they, they reach their max. Yeah. So now just kind of, what do we do with these kids? So there was a huge, huge abundance of kids with broken homes. Oh my and gosh. And so my mom, they literally reached out to my mom and she was just through, through the grapevine and different agencies, like in the center, shout out to them and things of that nature. Hey, we really need people like you who have integrity of being here. These kids need help. And how many kids are we talking? Now, and this is only since 2019, She's running at least 10 kids. 10? At least 10. Of all White ages. and black? White, black, um, mixed, Hispanic. Yes. I'm telling you, Regina Bush, I know you're going to listen to this episode because it's your son's uh, maiden voyage on the Black and Blue podcast, but shout out to you. This is a great segue into how I actually met Regina Bush mm -hmm. for the very first time and how you thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and white did play a role in it. Like, who's this crazy white dude? It did. It Isn't did. it true? For sure. Yeah. Oh, you got to tell the story, man. So, uh, <laughs> man, so this was back, man, like 2012. Yes. And um, at the time, we were, we were living in Grand Blank. Uh, all of us were at my mom's house. A lot of us, my brother, he was moving back and forth from Lansing. Um, and there was this random flood that came in uh, Grand Blank, Genesee County. And uh, at the same time, we had raccoons in our, in our attic. So a flood came in, everyone in our neighborhood, the water was just up to their knees and we don't live in a flood zone. So the naturally the insurance companies didn't cover it. So it's pretty much like, hey, you're on your own. By literally by the grace of God, we're like, hey, we got raccoons. So she was able to be like, hey, can we, um, we clearly there's urine, there's all type of stuff in our attic. Can we at least try to find somewhere to fix our attic until we can figure out what to do with the basement? So the insurance like, okay, you know, but you got like a week or two maybe. 
So, uh, Southern Baptist belief somehow, here's my mom's story, mm-hmm. and um, while we're at the Hampton, and between them and some other godly forces, uh, we got uh, we heard of Chris, the undersheriff. So my mom was telling me like, hey, yeah, well, I heard of this guy, you know, I think he's like with Sheriff Akeel, you know. At the time, I'm 17, 18, you know, I'm, I'm like in college. I'm like, okay, we don't have anything. Our house is like up to our knees in water. So she's like, hey, but I heard he's supposed to come by here to the hotel and he's supposed to just help me see how he can help us out and support us. And I'm you like, had two rooms. Yeah, we did. Because you and your sister when it was in another room. That's correct. And we were all on top of each other's layered. How many total kids in two rooms? Oh, man. We had, uh, and it was my brother, my sister. So in two rooms, we had like three or four people at any given time, not to mention the grandkids. Yeah. So you, it, so. it was crazy. And we're talking a Hampton Inn, yeah. two double beds, no room, just <laughs> packed. It was. And, um, but that, 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 the hope thing. So I was, I literally, I was late turning in a project. So I'm down there working. I remember the day you came in, like it was yesterday. So I'm working. And then she's like, mom's like, yeah, the undersheriff here. I'm like, what is that even? You know, I, not knowing the hierarchy and right. things. And she's like, you know, he's like the top cop of Jersey County. I'm like, okay, you come in, but you, you weren't in the uniform. Right. You just looks like you are. And I want to say it was you. Uh, but Jamie was Miss Swanson, and yep. then you had uh, your sons at the time. Yes, I did, Riley and Jordan. You did, and they were way young at the way time. Way young. Yeah. So, and, I, and you came in uh, with uh, <laughs> uh, two boxes full of like Great Harvest granola <laughs> on some breadsticks and some silk almond milk. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually what got me drinking almond milk to this day. Well, honestly. you can thank me. Real. You can thank yeah, me. But, and I was just like, wow, this dude, and it was fresh pizza. It was just a big box of cookies and granola. I'm like, what is going on? And he's like, hey, man, I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. <laughs> but, okay. You know, and he's like, well, you know, I hate the predicament you guys are in. I'm just here to help. How can I help? And my mom's just like, wow. You know, and it's our first time. That was our first interaction, um, like personal interaction right. with law enforcement. We had a family who was like City of Flint. Uh, law enforcement needs of that nature, but to see a, a white man who was the top cop of Genesee County come to a hotel, you know, it was different. I will say, it, like, broke my matrix altogether. Okay, so let's pause there. Now, his For story sure. is not to, like, you know, shine any positive light on me. The Bible no, says, no, don't no. let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. But I bring my boys, and my wife especially, but my boys to all these events their whole life. They've been on mission trips since they were 13 all over the world. Haiti, Dominican, Grenada, Chile, Honduras. Um, you know, we, I make sure that they see what real hurt looks like. Okay. And I remember going there and telling them the story cause we were driving through places that were blown out and, uh, I wanted them to like carry boxes and feel it. So I want to encourage anybody out there. Great moments come from random acts of kindness That's when it sure. comes to your kids, let them see it, let them feel it, mm-hmm. let them get in there. And, uh, now they do it on autopilot. They do it themselves. But I got to ask you, uh-huh, when you sure. says it broke your matrix, seeing me, <laughs> you got to explain, was there, was that a, was there a, a predisposed idea that you had about law enforcement or white folks before that? Oh, for sure. So we were one of the first black families in our neighborhood in Grand Blank. And you, once you told me that you came out of Ottawa Hills in Grand Blank, not too many people know the dynamic. Yes. It's <laughs> hilarious. So, and, I, and I didn't know, you know, I mean, right. we came in 2000s or so, but even I knew like, wow, this is a random black neighborhood in the middle of Grand Blank. So when we were one of the first families in like spinning wheel subdivision, right. so we just had this holding in with the law enforcement and we were getting pulled over all the time in Grand Blank because we were new there. Right. You know, we still had Flint uh, license plates, things of that nature. <laughs> And so just the, from coming from that and then being there and then like, wow, this is the sheriff coming. It was yeah. like, okay, now maybe my perception was wrong. Maybe See. it's different. 
because you see the movies, you get the image, oh, the sheriff, you know, sheriff's town. But man, your energy, it was way different. So it was like, okay, there's definitely humanity in law enforcement. It's not like this robotic thing, this right. is a person. So I think it's important, like, like I was living in the same city as Jaron and his family, uh -huh. but you had a, a black family living in a white neighborhood and a white family living in a black neighborhood yeah. in the same city. And uh, I, 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 I can tell you that your environment does change your mm -hmm. perception how you deal with things because I'm very comfortable in the black community because uh -huh. I moved in there when I was 13 years old so my best friends were Chris Keys and Malik Wilson and Billy Sams okay oh you said so you moved out of Hills when you were 13 yeah I moved oh, in wow. there yeah okay. I moved in there right it was a 13 year old I went all the way through there and and um, you know my family's from Detroit but the the thing is 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 in my formidable years I was very comfortable in living in a 70% black 30% white neighborhood uh -huh. where I didn't feel anything bad. I mean, I was, I was having a great time, you know, and, and I think I can tell you this, I think history will show that white folks treat minority people in neighborhoods different than black folks in a majority of a neighborhood treat minority white folks. And that's probably the case. Yeah. Cause I never, ever, ever thought that I was treated any different because we're the white kids in the black neighborhood uh -huh. man they were my bros yeah, see, <laughs> it was and, crazy and you'll find that we and i can't speak for every african-american person but right. we're we're not uh because my, my my father-in-law he's actually okay he's from livingston county got it and so like he and he he's from well he stayed in flint you know my my fiance's mom is yeah. from flint okay so very diverse background but it's like one of them things where we don't he knows when he was living here he was living off of lippincott oh yeah and he lives in livingston county now but he was like yeah nobody ever bothered me you see know? You know, and Lippincott's no joke. No, no, not and that was especially like in the come 80s. from Livingston County. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so that, that just goes, the connections are deep, the roots are deep. But yeah, here you won't be bothered. Man. And we're talking over ten years ago, you know. And so, point number one of this podcast is find people that don't look like you, believe like mm -hmm. you, live where you live, that have a need, and go fill it. You know, and there were no cameras, there's no nothing. It was just a family thing, and yeah, yeah. and that started a great relationship because literally. I'm friends with your whole family now. And mm -hmm. you got like 19. I just found out yesterday you got a brother who's in his 60s. Yeah. Yeah. What is his name? Mark. Mark, Mark, Mark Dotson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got a brother named Mark. Yeah. Mark Dotson, who I didn't know you had. But, but it's just a beautiful thing. One moment was able to build a, a, mm -hmm. a friendship for long. So then you grew up. You, uh, you have how many total foster versus adoptive kids does your mom have that, that all the other kids help raise? If you have a number. So... Since she's back into it now, I say she's she's actually adopted uh, upwards of seven kids, and then in and out of our household, just in the last two years alone, there's been ten to fifteen kids. Isn't that beautiful? Uh -huh. Your mom's unbelievable, and she never says no. Right, she's always a yes. I don't know how she does. <laughs> She'll it. say and yeah, she will say yes, and then she just uh, complain later. Right, I, I know. I should have said no. You know, I'm like yeah, just say no. She can't. Beginning. I don't think it's in her vocabulary. I know. Right? So what about your dad? Yeah, so he's from here. He's, you know, God rest his soul. He's he's passed, but he's from Flint. He's a General Motors guy. Um, he's uh, went to the Air Force. He was an E8 there. Wow. Um, so yeah, he went to the Air Force, General Motors. He was here. He was, um, real, he was an advocate in the community. You know, he sat back. He used to go to um, St. Lutheran Church over there and uh, off uh, Carpenter Road. Okay. So he was a longtime resident um, right there off of um, Brownells, where he stayed there for years. In fact, his house is still there. And my some of my other brothers are living this house okay. to this day. Yeah, they're Dotson. So, so yeah, my dad he he stayed he stayed around. They all they all know my dad. When he passed away, he passed uh, 2018. Wow, yeah, November 2018. Okay, uh, he was and he was 86 when he passed. So, 
So that's wow. when that 60 year old, you know, brother came no from. Doubt, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. Boom, boom. <laughs> you still active, baby. <laughs> we all got, you know. I so. guess so. Oh, dad didn't stop, I tell you. <laughs> I got a funny story. I was talking to my buddy, and he was saying that uh, when he was young, he was asking his grandfather, he's like, hey, I got to ask you a question, grandpa. Uh-huh. He's like, what? He's like, when do like old people like stop making love? Uh-huh. And uh, he was just like, what, what are you asking that for? He goes, I don't know. I was just wondering, like, when do they, like, stop making love? He said, son, I'm the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Real stuff. Yeah. And then I found out Dr. Lloyd, who's a doctor downtown, he just said, in front for the record, because everybody really wants to know this fun fact. Is uh-huh. like, when it, he yeah, goes, I got people in the 90s two, three times a week still. Okay. Isn't that crazy? That's like a little bit of a, uh, a fun fact on a Black and Blue podcast. And we never talk. How many times old people have sex? But, hey, it's the, uh, I'm proving. Hey, he That's was, right. He was at least no 60 doubt. something. So, yeah. you know, his, uh, hey, He's got human. his mojo going. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I love it. All right. Side note. When it uh-huh. comes to the, the family dynamics, and we got people listening and watching right now that they come from all types of families. Uh-huh. You know, as we mentioned, broken families and great families. What do you think keeps a family together in the black community? And that, that's an excellent, excellent point. Having a nucleus, whether it's a, a, a mother or a father. And I think uh, in our, I can only speak for my age group, it seems like a lot of us are picking up the baton because we come from homes without a father. And we see uh, what that does. We've seen what it does to us, what it did to us. And uh, thankfully, I had a, a very strong maternal figure, and my dad was around, but my mom was my mom, you know. Yeah. So, and, and, and it go, again, it goes for having a nucleus and uh, being able to be a person that can show um, a, a smaller person, hey, this is what success looks like. This is what trying looks like. Because it's very hard to say, hey, you should go out there and try, and you, should, you could do this. But if, if you don't have any examples of that before you, it's kind of hard to see and fathom. So it was like my mom, seeing my mom being a, a, a DHS worker, mm-hmm. you know, doing food stamps and things. It was like, okay, I knew at the very, at the least, I could get my stuff together and try to be a state worker. Yeah. You know. But Which you did. And I did. And I did. You're right about that. And it was one of the things where it's just planting the seeds. So going back to the household thing is, is having a nucleus. And, and it's a very um, a privilege to have both sides in the household. And I'm seeing now being 29 reaching 30 and I understand the dynamic of a household. Like if, if me and my wife have a kid and they can, and you can have more than one no or a yes mm-hmm. versus in my mom's household, it was no. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, if you heard no from her, is it? There's no, there's no appeal process. There you go. There you go. So it was like, it, it's it, one thing having a nucleus and nothing being able to be inspired by that nucleus. You know, that's a great point. Cause mm-hmm. that's exactly what Regina did. Mm-hmm. So let's get down to a, a difficult topic. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of folks that feel and wonder why there's such an absence of black fathers and families. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you think there's more of that in the black community than other communities and why? How, how, and then I guess the bigger question is, mm-hmm. how do you fix it? So, so there's three questions in there. Is uh, it true? Why? And how do you fix it? I, don't, I feel like nowadays, in my opinion, I don't think that's necessarily true. At least not now in these times is just just from what I'm seeing in my own bubble and perceptions that uh, it's looked down upon where you don't take care of your own if you don't take care ah. of your own kids. So do you think it was in the generation of like your father that that you your generation is turning the corner on it? I, I, and, and that's my belief, and I could right. be biased, but right. I, I believe so. And and it goes um, for not and I guess having a self worth and is 
when when you're in this environment and if you live in a certain say you got a house and down the street there's two houses and they're both abandoned and vacant you know it's having a self-worth in your in your household in your neighborhood and in flint specifically we have a lot going against us at mm -hmm. least it seemingly as a black male so if you say for instance if you did grow in that if you have a, a half a household um if you if your household is broken uh physically and uh, metaphorically then those are things uh, stacked against us. Mm -hmm. But the more that we pick up the baton and we say, hey, to our kids and our offspring, I want you to do better than I did. Got it. I want you to, hey, you see this person, you see this, hey, you might even be able to look at a sheriff. Look, you can do that. You know, you can look at a, a, a black sheriff's deputy and you can do that. But mm -hmm. it goes from not having, not really having the resources, not having the original resources to have um, a generational impact. So I feel like it's just starting with our generation maybe the one a little bit before us, but it's uh, sowing no seeds so we can have a generational impact ahead. Because I do feel like, and, and again, I can't speak for right. the entire generation, but it does right. seem like um, whether it was the, the 80s or you know the, the, the fall of our main employment here was General Motors, um, between not having some kind of stability is, is what affected us the most, in my wow. opinion. Yeah. But you're thinking we're doing better. Yeah, I, I agree. Because I feel like, um, we had a way to, so for instance, employment, once we get past the stage of necessity, then we can do what we want. Got it. And right now, I feel like we're learning that, hey, that necessity is always going to be there. We're kind of forced to do what we have to do, to do what we want to do. And back then, it was like, hey, there was so many more opportunities. You could get this. You can get lost doing this. There was so much more money in things. But now it's more of a survival mechanism where it's like we know we have to go out and learn. We have to learn trades and make opportunity stuff happen for us because it's not it's not as easy as going out and getting your own right. job. Right, you, you need to be the lead. Correct, correct. So let me ask you this. You know how, like, uh, I got a couple of buddies just flew down to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for the uh, Omega Conclave. You okay, know, the yeah. Fraternity, yeah, right? Yeah, And uh, they, they, you know, when they hear Atomic Dog on the radio, they go crazy and, you know, they dance and, you know, I, and you just got to step aside if you're not part of the fraternity, <laughs> of which I'm not, but I'm trying to get into. Okay. Uh there's such a camaraderie mm -hmm. between people when it comes to sports or fraternity. Do you think there's that kind of a camaraderie between fathers in the black community? Or do you think there's a big need for it, like encouraging others and, you know, encouraging other fathers? Because there's a huge burden mm -hmm. on parenting, period. There's a huge burden on single moms. But mm -hmm. what about encouraging dads to be dads, like you just said, like, like, it's looked down upon. I think you said it's frowned upon if you don't take care of your kids. Correct, correct. What do you think about that? And is there such a thing? Yeah, so, so actually, shout out to my brother and co-owner of our restaurant, Justin. He adopted my sister's kids. Uh, my okay. sister, Sarah, that I was mentioning about that my mom adopted. He actually adopted her kids because, again, she never, uh, she's still mentally ill. The same diagnosis she got when we were 10. Wow. You know, she's 29, 30 now, and she's still having kids. You know, so there have to be outside forces that looked after them. Got it. But he adopted her two kids, and he's a single parent, you know. So, it, and I feel like there's just a disconnect because um, if you talk to someone and it's like, hey, I can offer you this opportunity, I can do this. But if you go to a youth and like, hey, young man, uh, you should do this. You need to do this. But you can't offer anything. Yeah. And, that, and, and this is, in my opinion, that's, that's where it disconnected is. Because, like, oh, man, why should I listen to you? Like, okay, you told me to do this. You told me to yeah. pull up my pants or go to work. But it's like, dude, I, what kind of job? Can you point me to a job? Yeah. You, know, can you, you have point no me influence over me. Yeah. So when things like Ignite 
where it's like, hey man, you could do better. And then look at something like Ignite, like, hey, you could do better here. Go That's Ignite. our education model in the jail that changes culture. Google yeah. it, Ignite, I-G-N-I-T-E, Genesee County. So, so yeah, so it's, it's not only just like do this, it's like I'm giving you an option. This is one thing, if, you tell, if we're telling people what to do, it's another thing, right. it's like you're giving them opportunity. Then that's, that's so do you encourage your brother when he gets as a single parent with two adopted kids yes. that are, I mean, it, cause there's times where like on Tuesdays at nine o'clock at night, you're just whomped out. Mm -hmm. and, and I think people just need to get encouragement. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I understand because in, and on top, it's not his, you know, paternal yeah. DNA, you know? So it's like, he is almost like he took somebody else. Good uh, for him, yeah, man. That, What's his name? Justin, Justin Bush. That's right. And there's a lot of people stepping up and doing that in the foster care realm. Yes. And uh, in general, that are stepping up being mentors and things of that nature. But yeah. Hey, that, let me ask you, do you think uh -huh. of all the uh, the fostering and adopting uh, cares that your mom has done as your family, do you think the state of Michigan and other states, I know you can only speak for the state of Michigan, does enough to help support foster parents and adoptive parents? No, <laughs> no, and I only laugh because it's something you gotta laugh not to cry. The state can do a lot more, but, and it, and it comes from being grassroots. You don't know unless you are really out here. Yeah. And, and first responders, they see it the most because as soon yeah. as something goes bad in a household, and, and, it's, and it's not all sunshine and rainbows when it comes to adoption, um, because you, these kids have seen things, they've been through trauma, you know, and again, a lot of times the first people who see that are the kids themselves and the first responders. So again, if a kid comes and they're not necessarily fitting into the environment, a fixed environment, you know how my mom is. Sure. Then it's, there's lots of other kids around things of that nature, but it's like, this is a lot last stop for a lot of the kids. Last it's stop. Last stop. So for those listening right now, there's a big difference between fostering and adopting. Yep. Explain to us the difference. And this, this has no color barriers. Correct. What's the difference of the two? And what has what are the challenges? So fostering would be, um, it could be temporary or emergency placement, and you, you're giving placement to a child um, whose parents or guardians otherwise couldn't look after them. Immediately, and, like immediately. now. So they, she could get a call right now and say, hey, we got a newborn. If there was CPS, there was uh, incon uh, inconceivable housing, we just need a placement. And then they're like, we got like 10 hours before we could bring in. It's, it's, it's really instances like that that happen all the time. And then there was a huge explosion during COVID because again, people were trapped in their houses and things of that nature. So these things are just regurgitating. You're seeing the end of it. But like I said, when it comes to uh, supposed last stop is just because all the housing, uh, all the housing right now is just taken up. And yeah. The problems don't stop, but the, the, the influence of the problems keep going. So. So when somebody chooses to adopt, there's more of a process, there's more of a placement, do they have more say into yes. what happens? So on that note, so yeah, so fostering is giving them places to stay, usually temporary, adopting is you're becoming their parent. Right. You're, you're saying you're gonna raise them, you're working them into your home, and you're, and you're more than likely giving them your last name, and they're, they're literally, you're welcoming them into your family tree. You know? How long does it take on average to become a cleared and licensed foster parent? In, in in my case, or at least the case that I've seen, it depends. It could depend a lot on the agency, but I'll say the agency and the individual. Um, because we've been, there's been times where you think you have all your ducks in a row, and then he says, he said, it comes through, and that could put a hold on things. There, there isn't, um, there isn't any, because a lot of it is humans, you know, yeah. human, and it's, hey, this person clocks in, this situation happens, CPS, DHS, whatever. Um, hey, 
do we got a placement for them? Yeah. So this person, if a lot of times, if they went through all the hoops and hurdles, their adoption, you know, they have a, a approved adoption, so right. they can they can adopt as many as they want. They can have housing, um, but a lot of times, in and some could some could say there's a color barrier to that as well. Okay. Still, because you it's it's not likely that you would see a black foster parent with a Caucasian child. And right. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but right. it's, it's still um, not normal to see that. Is it more normal to see a white parent with a black child? Most definitely. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's disproportionate. It is because it needs availability or just either by default or by design got it ooh <laughs> yeah so we, we're gonna come back and revisit your economic impact mm-hmm. and your own business and how people invested in you to get your brother and your business opened up but before we get off the foster and adoptive parent topic if uh-huh. there's if you could do one thing to fix the foster system you could only do one in five seconds or less what would it be fix the foster fix the foster care system it would be having less uh, administration between the actual households um, and the decision makers. Hmm. It needs to, that's, that's pretty much it. There needs to be an ear go to the households for people like my mom who are generally trying to do better with, with little to no funding or resources say, hey, how can we help you? And then let that data um, go to the decision makers Got versus it. the middlemen and the you know other people. And no matter what, the, the message is going to get distorted. Right, so I say, if you want to fix it, uh, the state should do more to go to the households. Streamline those. it. Correct. And I think not only do things get lost in translation, it frustrates parents that want to be foster parents and just tap out. Yes, like, exactly. This is crazy. That's exactly. What would be the one thing you would do in five seconds or less to help the adoptive process? I would. I would have a little more oversight, and it would be of a community-driven oversight. And I can go all day about the actual um, things in play and the structure in play when it comes to uh, child protective services and, of course, the things of that nature. Right. But, again, the human aspect when it comes to making decisions comes in. And I feel like if we had more of an oversight with the actual mm-hmm. some kind of community other than just, hey, this person uh, in this employment has a decision, they go home at 530. Got it. And, and it has just very, uh, ramifications that – extend you know and it and actually i was in the midst i I went to adopt my niece at the time my brother who my brother has and i was 18 or 19 but they wouldn't let you i had that's i had i had to make sure i was working 40 hours a week i had to make sure i had the uh presidency and all this and it was my niece you know and at the time i'm 19 you know so i'm telling my brothers and sisters like hey i'm First out of high school, I'm in college. Like I'm just trying to help so my niece yeah. doesn't go to the system. And I understand you know? they're trying to do their best to to vet it too. Yeah. But, yep. And my wife does not like when I say this, but I don't say it in a way to be insensitive. I also think that foster parents and adoptive parents need to be incentivized. They need to be encouraged financially to keep going. I, they're taking on all the financial burden. They're trying to split their families up. They're just, they're working extra jobs. And I just don't feel like there's enough financial support specifically for those folks. A hundred percent. I agree with you a hundred, actually hundred and ten. Because yeah. I, I know the stories, I hear the families. And again, these kids, they, they end up in these situations from the trauma thing. So yeah. um, usually they have, um, there's, they have some kind of issues that stem from 
not no fault of their own, right? But just from the environment they were placed in. Yeah. So now, in so you ask the difference between uh, adoption uh, versus foster care. So if you are adopting kids, right, and, and they're part of your family, but now you have a different dynamic of fostering where you got different kids coming in consistently and you have no idea the trauma or things they go to. And that affects, yeah. without, you know, the affects the other kids of your right. household and things of that nature. Yep. Well, we got, we got the ability, not only right now, to use our voice, we have the ability, if you're watching right now, in your position of influence, to make decisions, mm -hmm. to hear what Jaron said, to listen to what uh, the stories tell you in your heart, to be involved as a foster parent, wherever mm -hmm. you are, not even in Michigan, to not get frustrated with the system, try to fix the system, be an adoptive parent, uh, but more importantly, be encouraged on these kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. That's why we do what we do. It's Black and Blue Podcast, you know, and and everybody's got the ability to do something, but yeah. you have no right to do nothing. I agree. You can definitely, don't get discouraged. If my mom can do it and, and take on the state of Michigan, you can definitely do it. I love it's it. Just, you're going to go through hoops and hurdles, but it'll definitely be worth it. And then and the kids, the impact you have on the kids, to this day, kids that went on to other people's house with their grandparents, things of that nature, and they still reach back like, hey, Miss Bush, can we can For we come sure. over to swim? Get I on love lights? it. You know, so it's definitely um, it's definitely a way out, but you just can't get discouraged. And, no. um, you know, I just say if the state is listening, just again, make it easier on the actual households and the parents and listen. So there's good things coming. Our next guest that you're going to want to watch and listen to is Shane Jackson, Ph.D. in nutrition and Phenomenal personality. She's like, boom, the other half of Swanson. Uh, our co-host here, Jaron's coming back for the Black and Blue podcast featuring Shane Jackson. Catch you next time. Be encouraged. Stay the course. Thanks for all you do.